Welcome to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast, presented by Zenium HR. I'm your host, Brandon Laws. Whether you're an HR professional or a small business leader, each episode of this podcast is designed to bring you the latest in technical HR and leadership at your convenience. More content is available on our website at www.zeniumhr.com. Let's dive into today's topic. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Laws. Hey, today's episode, I have a discussion with Melissa Dobbins. She is the CEO of Career.Place, and we talk about bias in the hiring process. I asked a lot about why are we talking about bias so much? Why is it why are we seeing it come up so often? And really what can we do as employers and as managers and leaders? What can we do to avoid bias all throughout the hiring process, recruiting process, all those steps? And Melissa's got a lot of great content on her website at career.place. I uh, really enjoyed this discussion with her. I do want to apologize. The audio is not great on Melissa's side. Uh, so just wanted to give you a forewarning there, but I think you're going to find that the content is so well worth it. Uh, she's great in this podcast and really enjoyed the discussion with her. I always like to find topics that I don't know a lot about. Admittedly, bias is not an area that I'm an expert in. And again, that's why I have Melissa and others like her on the podcast. So um, I learned a lot from her and I can't wait to hear what you think about this podcast. So definitely reach out to me on LinkedIn, Instagram, um, or email me. Uh, I'd love to hear what you think about the podcast. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Melissa, it's so great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Yeah. So the, a topic we haven't really touched on on this particular show is, is bias and bias, particularly around the hiring process. You're an expert in that area. You've got an amazing blog. Uh, I believe it's career.com. Place is that right? That's correct. Okay. Place. So you're—I mean, I went through a lot of your posts. You've got some great content, so I want to definitely encourage people to go check that out. Uh, but I really wanted to, to understand from your point of view, like, why are people talking about bias right now? I think, like, we were talking offline a little bit ago, and you were saying how you know, ten years ago, this is sort of a off-limits subject, or, or people really weren't talking about it. And there's a lot of noise in this area now. Why now? Well, I think there's a lot of things that contribute to bias now. It's not a new conversation. The idea of being inclusive, the idea of building a business with multiple types of people from all different backgrounds is not a new one, but it's certainly a hot topic. Part of that is politics. I don't like to go into politics, but it does heat up the conversation quite a bit. There's also been a lot of movements around various inclusion areas, such as gender inclusion, with women, minority inclusion. But, you know, it's even more basic than that. I think the awareness that having people from different backgrounds isn't just the right thing to do from a social standpoint. It's also the right thing to do from a business standpoint. So a really easy way to think about it is, you know, you look back at the TV shows like Mad Men, and there was a bunch of men sitting in a room trying to figure out how to sell pantyhose to women. And they probably didn't get it very <laughs> right because none of them had worn pantyhose 
four. So the more diverse a group is, the more we're able to include people of all different backgrounds, of all different types, the more we're able to resonate with our uh, customers because our customers look like everybody. And I think that general awareness that it's not just the right thing to do, it's the right thing to do for the bottom line is also driving this conversation. So what forms of bias are there? I hear like gender bias all the time. There's racial bias. What types of bias are you running into? And then I know there's different like specific types, like one's unconscious, one's conscious. So maybe break that down for us to just give listeners a sense for what we're really talking about when we say bias. So there's a lot of ways that people try to package bias. Um, the very common ones are against those demographics that are protected mm-hmm. by the EEOC. Those that have you know, government backing, uh, those would be gender bias, race bias, ageism, and um, if you have a disability, veteran status. However, bias is a lot bigger than that. It's not really a bucket as much as bias is anything that distracts you from what matters. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example. You're looking at a bunch of people uh, for potential hires, and one of them went to your alma mater. Oh, well, that's mm, cool. Yeah. So I'm at, the, at the top of the pile, you know, go Trojans, my alma mater. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, maybe the, the applicant with the alma mater that you love to hate <laughs> could end up at the bottom of the pile. So where someone went to school is not a direct correlation and in some cases has absolutely nothing to do with whether they're going to be good for the job or not. We get distracted. So those biases are anything and everything that distracts us from focusing on what matters. And so are people aware that they're distracted by those biases or are they not aware of it? Like I I could think of many things (laughs) where I'm just maybe not aware of it, but maybe I preconceived notions about something. I, I know people go through that. So yes and yes, there are biases we're absolutely aware of. Um, I can joke around about my alma mater, but I'm absolutely aware that uh, I will put a Trojan to the top of the pile. I won't admit what I might do with Bruin, and neither one of those is the correct answer. But on a, a larger scale, yes, there are biases we're aware of. There are biases we're not aware of. And that's okay. We're human. We're supposed to be biased. It's actually a biological trait that has allowed us to survive. So if you take a step back and you look at where bias comes from, it's that same mechanism, that same shortcut in our brain that tells us if it's a tiger, run. If it's a kitten, you don't need to run, unless you might be allergic to kittens. But it's allowed us to survive because we need those shortcuts to be able to quickly decide if something's dangerous or how to make a decision quickly. Now, the problem comes in is when we start applying them to people. Because those shortcuts are what get us into trouble. I've never really heard it put that way. It's almost like we use biases as a form of safety. Like you said shortcuts. It's like it's a way to know we're going to be in a safe place or that we can make some quick assumptions based on what we already know. Exactly. It's also how you shop. You know, when you go to the supermarket, you're not reading the label on every package of every cereal box to decide. You have a favorite. You recognize a brand. You recognize a character. You recognize the shape or the logo of that cereal box, you grab it, you keep going. Otherwise, you're never going to get out of that supermarket. That's also biased. That's, that's, these are all the different shortcuts we use in order to make quick decisions that allow us to run from danger as well as get through our shopping trip in less than an entire day. It sounds like 
you know, bias on the surface, it's not all bad, but we're in, you know, in the, when we're talking about the employer employee or candidate relationship, where can it really start getting you in hot water? There's a lot of different biases that get us into hot water, both known and unknown. And it truly doesn't matter if it's a known or an unknown bias, if it's affecting your decision. So as you're evaluating candidates, if you're jumping to a conclusion that is not based on information that allows you to go to that conclusion, that bias is getting you into trouble. Um, For example, if you're talking to a candidate, like I need someone who's tech savvy, so I'm going to go with someone who's young. Well, okay. Mm. (laughs) Being young, which is a very common bias, being young does not necessarily mean someone's tech savvy. Not being young does not mean they're not tech savvy. That piece of information, while you might have seen some pattern in your past or been exposed to some pattern in your past that allows you to jump to that bias, is not fair for that individual. Patterns work only on a macro level. They do not work for individuals at all. So the better thing to do is to ask them about their technical experience or to do a technical assessment and not worry about the age at all. I like that example you just gave about you know hiring somebody for a tech role and uh, you know you want to you're going to hire somebody maybe young for that and that's an obvious example of where you might be biased that somebody who's younger is good with technology. How, that could stay under the radar though. I could I could imagine where bias could just happen all the time because how do you prove that somebody who's hiring is is being biased unless you look at data over time. So how do we like fundamentally make a paradigm shift to say being aware of our biases and making sure we remove them, it's the right thing to do. I think you and I both are in agreement with that. But how do we how do we hold people accountable? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think that goes to answer the original question that you asked or why are we talking about it so much? Mm, yeah. It's because we're starting to go into this direction where from a data level, we know we have a problem and now we've got to figure out how to fix it. Um, And then just, you know, taking a look at exactly how big this problem is, there's a study that's been done over and over again, uh, including from very reputable sources like Harvard Business Review, where they take a resume and they take the exact words, the entire resume, exact word for word, except one thing, Hmm. the name, and they flip out the name. So you've heard of this study and looking at if you have a distinctly white versus a distinctly black name, what happens? What's the difference? And it's significant. Oh my gosh, it's scary. It is. It's so it's, I think it's something like 50% more times white males will get the callback than black males Mm. for the exact same resume. For men and women, it's a major difference. If you have a name that sounds like a certain ethnicity, it's a major difference. So we know we have the problem. It's been measured over and over again. So to your point, how do we solve it? How do we start getting towards that accountability? And we have an additional challenge because when you start these conversations and you pointed this out as well at the beginning, there's a lot of taboo, a lot of discomfort around biases, around discrimination, around unfair advantages of one group over another. And so you usually start with the conversation and the very first reaction you get is, oh yeah, it's a problem, but it's not my problem. I'm not biased. And you hear that over and over again. And it's very hard to start the conversation when the first step is I'm not biased. It's denial. Mm, Yeah, it's emotionally driven, I get that. It is. People don't want to be. And, you know, I, I get it. 
But if we all come from the angle of, you know what, we're all biased. We all have biases, whatever they are. And let's start there and talk about how do we not let those biases affect hiring decisions. And now we're enabling ourselves to get better and to be accountable. It seems to me like maybe we weren't talking about it before because it was maybe just a feeling that we were biased or that people were biased. And it's, it's hard to just call somebody out and say, hey, you're being biased. Well, just how do you prove it unless you have a bunch of data over time? And maybe we're at a place now where we've got machine learning, we've got all the technology and the tools in place to, to in the studies and the studies happen as well. You just mentioned one where we now have the data to, to really back up that feeling of mm-hmm. we're actually we're actually biased. We have the, the data to prove it. And now we can have a conversation about it. Do you feel like I'm right about that where maybe it's now a two-way conversation instead of just a, an emotionally charged one? I think there's a few things. Yes, I believe that there is data that's now enabling us to have more productive conversations. I think we're also seeing a shift as we see new generations coming into the workforce that don't have the same biases as the other generations, as the older generations, and are pushing for the conversation. Uh, there's a lot of awareness raising. There's a lot of other tangential conversations going on that are all pushing against each other. Uh, so from, for example, like the Me Too movement, which is very tangential, but it's a very gender-loaded issue. And so now you've got this concept of gender equality. And that comes right back to the bias, because when you have studies that show that women make 70% of what men make, you know, we've got a problem. And so all of these are acting together, and it's a good thing, because if we're in a a society, a conversation of change, of positive change, we can all make a difference together. And it's a great thing that the kids that are coming out of colleges now just aren't going to accept a homogeneous environment. So this is our opportunity. Let's let's change the way we fundamentally look at hiring and how we affect it. And over time, weed out those biases. We can do it. We have tools and instruments we can use now that can also raise our awareness and train us to be more inclusive going forward. I want to get into some technical things of the hiring process. It's really going to be the focus of this podcast, but. You'd wrote in a blog post, so I thought it was really interesting. You, you talked about how there's a few tools, the applicant tracking system, maybe a resume screening process and uh, a cover letter reviewing process that each of these areas may lead to some some bias in the early stages of the hiring process. How so? So a lot of the tools that we have now are all designed around resumes. Resumes have innate problems with them all because they trigger our biases. So there's a few issues there. One is you know, we see a lot of information that's not pertinent to the job when we're in a resume. Everything from years of experience, which exposes out things like age, gaps in experience, which up until recently has been considered a negative thing, um, independent of where those gaps might have come from, as well as things as simple as gender or ethnicity. So when you do things like resume reviews, are you really focusing on the points that matter or are you getting distracted? And to your point earlier, if your if your biases are unconscious, then you might not notice or realize you're getting distracted. And so that's one piece. Then there's things like the, the applicant tracking system, which within itself is, is a great tool. It allows you to make sure you're not letting any of your applicants fall through the cracks, right? So you're getting back to people, you know where they are in the process. But when you use things like keyword filters, yeah. now you're introducing another problem. 
because keyword filters only work as well as your applicants know the keywords. <laughs> so you've got, you've got two things. First, you're, you're testing keyword knowledge, not actual capability, skill, or background. So now you've got applicants who know how to game the system, and they literally keyword load their resumes. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a trick now where people will copy the job description, because usually keywords are within the job description, and paste it into their resume in white two-point font. So it's invisible, hmm. but not to an applicant tracking system. Yep. So they'll pass through the keyword filter. Whereas you have the opposite end of the spectrum. Let's take, for example, a veteran who just came out of the service, who has done all the relevant things and has all the relevant skills, but calls them something different. So when she's applying, she might not hit any of those keywords. And therefore, even though she's an awesome applicant, she's just been filtered out. It's it's interesting because like I, I love technology. Don't get me wrong. I, I think it, it saves us a lot of time. Um, allows us to focus on more strategic things. But let, let's take the example of, uh, you talked about USC, right? Mm-hmm. So you might put somebody on the stack that's at the at the highest level, maybe have the same skills as other people, but uh, you like that they went to USC. So let's put them at the top of the pile. So let's take the example of an applicant tracking system. You have, uh, let's say, 200 resumes come in and and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just going to run a quick search to see <laughs> who might have went to USC out of these applicants. And so maybe f- five results come back. Well, let's say then you you phone screen or you, you give interviews to those five people. That, that's an example of where, yeah, you're saving time with the tool, but you literally just use your bias to put applicants ahead of everybody else. Right. Exactly right. And then on top of that, when you use that next part of the example with the phone screen, there's another layer of bias. Mm-hmm. Because especially with people who are not uh, fully and continuously trained, because bias is just like anything else, it's a comfort zone thing. So if it's not being continuously reinforced, you tend to go back into those habits. So most people doing phone screens is part of a lot of other things that they do. Right. It it might be something that they are doing only for an afternoon one day and then they're going back to their other jobs. So it's not always top of mind. So those phone screens becomes another become another area of potential bias because who gets through? It's the people they resonate with. The ones they like. So we call it the the beer test. I've passed the beer test because I want to go get a beer with you out of after work. So you must be an awesome candidate. So not only is that a different form of bias, because now you're evaluating someone on what you might have in common or how you resonate with each other, you tend to also resonate more with people like you, whatever like you means, which lowers that diversity. And um, a lot of times that's packaged up in that that wonderful term called culture fit, uh, where they are or not a good culture fit, which is code for I like you or I don't like you. Yeah, it's funny. I I had in my notes to to ask you about this. I want to put another plug in to uh, have people go to your website because you got a lot of great content there. There's one. There's one of these comics that you must post pretty regularly. It says "No job for you," and there's one that I pulled because it's it was a great illustration of the point you just made about culture fit. So I, I'll I'll definitely put a link up to to this so people can see what I'm about to describe. But in in this picture, you have what appears to be a hiring manager who's a sheep. There's three, uh, four candidates, three of which are also sheep and one's a deer. I think it's a deer. (laughs) Uh, And it's in the in quotes, it says one of you is not a great culture fit. And in the the funny thing is, is I think we use that that word 
culture fit based on people that either look like us or people that we like or people we could be friends with. Whereas one person may look a little different, but yet they're not a culture fit. And that's just an easy cop out, in my opinion. Is that a, yes. is that a, is that a good illustration of what you're describing right now? It absolutely is. And it's extremely common. And, you know, culture is a very important thing. Don't get me wrong. Having someone who's a good culture fit, culture add, culture expansion, however you want to call it, is critical. Because you don't want your culture to go astray. But we are not necessarily defining culture in a productive way. So if culture fit is a feeling, I just feel like they're not going to be like the rest of us, you're probably going in the wrong direction. Uh, it should be something that's very clearly defined. It's against mission. It's against values. Yes. It's against the corporate personality. Um, a way I like to describe it is culture is not if you have a ping pong table in the corner. Mm -hmm. Culture is if people are using the ping pong table. Yep. Yep. Yeah, you're totally right. It's a, it's a value based thing. It's it's uh, culture is really about are we you know a similar person in terms of our morals, beliefs, values, the way we see the world, the uh, uh, vision for the business, those sort of things, right? Right, the things that drive us. So, for example, if you've got a value of being open and honest and and having productive, but very frank conversations. That's great. And you want people who can thrive in that environment. And that might not be their um, that might not be their comfort zone, but they're able to thrive in that environment. What's not good is if you say that's your culture and no one actually does it, because now you've got double problems, right? Now you're looking for people to fit something that isn't actually real, and then using that to um, to decide if they're good or bad fit. And that also happens. So if it's a culture fit, it's just a feeling and you can't point to what value or mission or corporate identity is being violated, then it, it's not a good reason to not look at a candidate. And if you're judging them on things that are good values, strong values and identity, but your company doesn't actually have those values, that's also not a good thing. When we talk about like, think about the interview process and the kind of questions we should ask, obviously there, there are questions that um, maybe, you know, not in necessarily intentionally uh, include bias involved. So mm -hmm. I, I, took, I pulled an example from one of your blog posts and you had a ton of examples that maybe you can elaborate on, but an example of one that includes bias is as a man, what do you find are the biggest challenges in starting a business? So why is that not a good question? So in the, in the blog that I think you're referring to is the as a woman, right? Yeah, so yeah. I was being asked quite a bit, as a woman, you know, what are the challenges of starting a business? And of course, in the back of my mind, I was like, probably, you know, I mean, as a woman, that's that's the only way I can answer a question. I've yeah, yeah, exactly. been a woman. So I couldn't answer it any other way. But what it does is it starts flavoring the response. Yeah. So it can do a few things. Um, it can take the response and put it in a bucket that this is what women experience and not men, mm -hmm. which there are situations where that is true. There's many, many more where it's shared and it doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man. Um, it also can start, it can trigger that this is only applicable for women, yeah. which is problematic because there's value to answers for everybody. Um, and then in some cases it can devalue an answer because you're saying, you know, not as a normal person, but as a special type of person, what do you think? <laughs> and it devalues the answer. Yeah. So things like that, where it has that as a 
whatever you happen to be, what do you think of this? I mean, the first thing that we should think about is, does it really matter? Are you truly looking for the opinion of a particular type of individual that you're calling out? And you really want to know why is it different for women? Or are you just throwing that in there? Because yeah. then you're loading the response before you give the, the person a chance to respond. What's a better way to phrase it? Is it literally just cutting off the as a man, as a woman, and just saying, what do you find are the biggest challenges in starting business? Or is there a better way to phrase it? I mean, absolutely. Like You could ask me as an engineer, what is the what are the challenges of starting a company? As a parent, what are the challenges mm-hmm. of um, starting a company? As a I mean, veteran. Maybe, as a veteran, as, as whatever it is, if you're looking for answers that really do matter based on that lens. Yeah. If the lens doesn't matter, if you just want to know what the challenges are of starting a business, you don't need to qualify that. So when doing a, when hiring and when talking to, to applicants, most of the time, it's a matter of what they're capable of doing, how they're going to uh, rise to challenges and solve the problems, what value they're going to bring to your company. Do you really care if the answer is as a woman? Probably not. So the question is then, what comes to my mind when I, when we talk about the, especially the the hiring process early on, you have so many, depending on the size of the company, of course, you have <laughs> so many different types of hiring managers, HR people touching every single part of the process. How do you how do you get people all on the same page with this this <laughs> concept of bias? Everybody's so different. Everybody has different biases. Is it? How do you instill this culturally? It seems like you need to really get to the root, like fundamental, the core belief system of people. And that's very challenging to do. And a lot of times when you start there and you start with the fundamental beliefs and you try to reprogram people, it doesn't really work. And we're we're not great at reprogramming, Um, especially, you know, there's things that we like to hold on to that that are rituals for us. So why not instead of reprogramming who we fundamentally are as human beings, which again, remember, we're biased for a reason. It is what allowed us to survive. So we're not going to reprogram that anytime soon. But there are ways that we can mitigate it, and there are ways that we can manage it. For example, if you predefine the questions to an interview before you start looking at the first candidate, you're not going to be influenced by what that candidate looks like. You're not going to ask women different questions than men. You're not going to ask people of different ages different questions because everyone gets the same question set. So if you start before evaluating the candidates and define, here's what I need, here's what success is for the job, here's the types of questions I want to ask to see if this person is going to be successful in this position in my company, then you can apply them to everyone equally, right? So if everyone gets the same questions, everyone's being evaluated the same way. Another technique is taking advantage of exactly what you just said. You said everyone has their own biases, and you're absolutely right. So if you have one person evaluating a candidate, you're going to get one set of bias. But if you have multiple people evaluating the candidate against that same criteria set that was predefined, the biases are going to start to negate each other. Yeah, because, like well, like some people could be obsessive um, – with, with spelling and grammar. Like, I just need that perfect, beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And then other people like me and not see spelling and grammar. So, <laughs> so there will be more content, for example, when looking at a piece. So if you have those different perspectives, reviewing candidates, you're going to get a much more well-rounded and therefore less biased uh, result. It, 
unless of course everyone has the exact same opinion because they are the exact same. Uh, but let's assume that's not the case. <laughs> You uh, you had a really great point in one of your, your posts, and I think it was more in reflection to a, a conference that you went to on diversity, inclusion, and bias. And uh, you probably know what I'm talking about, but you mentioned the theme of the conference was just do it. Mm-hmm. Like, let's take this information and just, just let's go do it. But there <laughs> weren't really clear steps on how to just do it, right? So you know, similar to having unconscious bias, like if you're not really aware of the biases that you do have or that the people inside the organization have, how do you, like, what's the blueprint? How do you just stop doing it? (laughs) It's it's, it's an excellent question. And it's actually been a major theme of ours um, in late 2018 and into 2019 that it's not just a matter of presenting the products, presenting the tools. It's a matter of presenting the mindset of, of action, of things that everyone can do. We have to start creating this culture of positive change. Mm-hmm. And you cannot have positive change if you don't know what to do, right? And just saying, we're going to end bias. Okay. <laughs> and how are we going to do that? Um, so, for example, we now have a program that we're, we're running. It's, we call it Tips for Inclusive Hiring. And it's one tip a week. We, hire, we um, post it every Thursday. And all it is is a simple thing a simple step anybody in any organization can do. It's free, it's easy, and it's designed to raise awareness and allow people to take actual steps to creating a more inclusive and less biased hiring experience. Um, For example, the first tip that we ran back at the, the beginning of the year was simply don't face the candidate with their back to the door. I mean, if we think about it, when you're when you're doing an interview, an in-person interview, most of the time, the uh, hiring manager or whoever's doing the interview is sitting in their office. Their desk faces the door. So the candidate who's talking to them naturally will have their back to the door. Mm-hmm. But if that candidate is, for example, deaf or hard of hearing and has no idea what's going on behind them, that can raise anxiety. If that candidate is a veteran, or has uh, had a previous job in something like law enforcement, where they're trained never to have their back to the door. That actually increases anxiety. They're wondering what's happening behind them. The back of their neck is prickling because their back is to the door and they are trained heavily never for that to happen. So you've now created an unfair and less inclusive environment Mm. for those individuals simply because of where the chair is. The solution is easy move the chair (laughs) and you've solved, you've created a more inclusive environment. So even little steps like that, and there are a lot of them can create a major difference for people that, that you're interviewing. Another one that, um, that we're going to run is in, in a couple weeks is around, um, don't assume the gender of the spouse or the significant other. So sometimes you're having that natural banter. You're just trying to make, make sure the candidate is relaxed. And, and so you might talk about what they did over the weekend. And they'll, they might bring up, don't do it yourself. That's illegal. But they might bring up around their family uh, and, that, and imply that they have a significant other spouse. And what a lot of people will do naturally is assume the opposite gender. Oh, what does he do for a living? Mm, yeah, yeah. Now, think about what happens to those who whose uh, significant other is not the opposite sex. You've now put them in a position where either they're forced to come out 
or they're forced to lie. Neither one of those could be comfortable for that individual. And that's a less inclusive and, and biasing and uncomfortable situation. Super easy. Avoid the pronouns. So I imagine, I mean, it sounds like this is going to take time. You have to instill it in the culture. And I'm really curious, how do you create the culture of accountability with this? Because, mm-hmm. it, like, for example, if, if colleagues of mine I, is biased in a hiring process, how do you confront somebody like that where it's like, I suspect this person might be being a little biased. Uh, how do you, how do you hold them accountable? Well, there's a few things that everyone can do. One of the, the big things is to make sure that there's some sort of record. So yeah. danger comes in if the, if the interview, first of all, is not predefined. So you don't have the questions. You don't have the requirement to kind of winning it. That's dangerous. There's a lot of bias that can come into that. A lot of things that can go sideways. Um, so just defining what it is you're looking for up front and everyone being evaluated against that starts driving it down. But then also having some sort of trail of why people are or are not passing each step. So it's not just they didn't meet the criteria. They're not a culture fit. I didn't think they would be successful. Those should always be unacceptable. There should always be a why. And the why needs to be connected to one of the requirements of the job. I am looking for someone to do a copy edit job. They need to be proficient at grammar and spelling. And in this writing sample, there were five spelling errors and it was only two paragraphs long. That is a lie. But if it's, I don't, I just didn't feel like they'd be a good fit. That should be a flag. So holding people accountable can be as simple as the why. Even better, do it in groups panel interviews, panel reviews, having the submissions being reviewed by multiple people. Back to the conversation before, it's going to alleviate some of the biases because you have multiple perspectives. But then it also holds everyone accountable because if someone says, well, I didn't like the style, that, that's just not our style. You've got two other people looking at that same document and going, I don't, I don't know what she's talking about. This is a great piece. Well, then you might have found some bias. This is such a great conversation. Uh, honestly, there's so much to, so much more we could unpack, uh, and there's so many more tips that I'm sure you could provide. But I want to again encourage people to go to career.place, check out Melissa's blog posts. Uh, there's a lot of amazing tactical tips that I think you could really easily translate to your own organization. Uh, Melissa, what do you want to leave people with as they they really start? thinking and talking and, and really installing uh, some of the ideas from this this whole topic of bias at work? You're, uh, you're going to be amused by my response because it's going to be, don't be distracted and concerned about bias, about um, diversity, about inclusion, about any of these terms that are so loaded and need to be unpacked. Yeah. If you start with the very simple, what does my organization mean? What is it that's going to be successful for this position? What does that look like? How can I measure it? And I mean, objectively measure, not, oh, I like that answer. Objectively measure it. If you start there, all of those problems will start to disappear because it's creating this culture. It's creating this habit of evaluating based on those needs, on those criteria, on those measurable attributes and not based on those gut reactions and those feels. And that's where the bias lies. And what you'll find is if you set that expectation at the front end of a hiring process of what you're looking for and make sure you can answer why 
to every one of those criteria. Why do I need a college education? If it's because that's what I've always needed, it's probably not relevant. It's probably not required. You're using it as a proxy for something. So make sure you have a clear why for every single one of those requirements and evaluate people against them. And you're going to see that diversity increase. You're going to see the bias decrease because now you've got that common ground that you can have all your conversations against. Melissa, where can people find more about you and your work? Um, Anything that you want to point people to? Yeah, we've got everything on our website at www.career.place, including uh, descriptions about what our product does, which is all around removing the bias by creating that environment where they can create, here are my requirements, and then anonymously evaluate candidates against those requirements. So we take it to the next step and say, you know what, we're just not going to give you that information that could cause the bias in the first place. And that set of requirements that you've defined, you're only going to see that. Um, But it also has our blog. It has white papers on how to do job descriptions, on how to evaluate assessments, and a bunch of other content that hopefully will help create that positive change, that, that momentum that we need for all of us in every organization to start removing the bias, to start increasing diversity and being more inclusive. Melissa Dobbins, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and keep up the awesome work. This is great stuff. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Human Resources for Small Business podcast. Subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our blog at www.zeniumhr.com forward slash blog and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn to hear about the latest in HR and leadership. The information on today's episode is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as legal or customized advice for you or your organization. This podcast is hosted and fully produced by Brandon Laws, that's me, and created and owned by Zenium Resources, Inc. For more information or to contact us, visit www.zeniumhr.com.